before we dig into God's word, I just want to uh, comment on um, where we stand as a church and relate to the provincial guidelines in response to COVID. Uh, we dig into all this stuff, and we've learned that under phase one of Ontario's reopening plan, we as a church are able to meet outdoors with as many people as we can, uh, proper, as can properly maintain physical distancing. So our leadership team right now is making plans to be able to meet with all of the church in one place uh, for outdoor services as soon as phase one comes into effect. So stay tuned for more news, but man, that's going to be wonderful. We haven't met as one church in a long time. And pray that there's no changes uh, to the provincial plan, that they'll allow that to continue. We'll keep you posted on that. Um, we are continuing our series in the book of Genesis. We've been working through uh, the first 12 chapters of Genesis over the last year. We're nearing the end, but we've stopped along the way to, to look at some foundational issues of, that Genesis speaks to with greater depth. And so we're doing that today on the topic of race, ethnicity, and culture. Um, our reading for this morning is actually going to come from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 14. We'll read 14 to 22. But uh, really, this sermon is, is based on the legwork that we've already done in our study in Genesis. So uh, a lot of things we'll be doing, we'll, we'll mention little truths we've get, gained along the way, but it's, it's built on the work we've already done. Hopefully, uh, you've had a chance to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're able to, where you're gathered, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Ephesians 2, chapter 14, or verses 14 to 22. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we do want to dig into your word today, but not just in a sort of academic way where we're studying truths um, 
to, to understand concepts. We want to dig into your word so that your Holy Spirit can use it to shape our hearts and our lives and our minds to make us more like Jesus. And we know we need a word from you. We know we need to be filling our minds with you and not all the rigmarole that floats around these days. So God, we together pray for a work of your spirit as we dig in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Gentlemen, this is a football. That's how new coach Vince Lombardi greeted the Green Bay Packer football team at the first practice he ever had with them. Never mind that that team had fallen only one game short of the championship the year prior. Lombardi felt he wanted to start with the basics and make sure that they were understood. Because he believed if we understand the basics, the rest will take care of itself. And so to make his point, he started with his, this is a football. From there, he went on to show them the proper way to tackle and the proper way to block and so on. Now, this philosophy of, of making sure the basics were understood worked. His 1960s Packers teams would go on to win five of the next seven championships. So as I mentioned, the topic for today's sermon is race, ethnicity, and culture. And when it comes to that theme, Genesis is our Vince Lombardi. It's not going to wow us with intricate arguments about critical race theory and intersectionality. It won't uh, parse for us all the strengths and weaknesses of the Black Lives Matters movement or tell us just how woke we need to be. In a sense, it stands outside the froth of our Facebook and Twitter feeds. It rises above the noise of the news cycle and tells us, gentlemen, this is a football. It brings us back to the basics. Basic foundational truths that we simply must understand amidst the din of this racial moment. And while the truths that it gives us may be basic, I think they're very powerful. So this morning what we're going to do is look at four foundational pillars that Genesis puts forth for us in our thinking about race, ethnicity, and culture. But before we do that, I think it's important that we just define our terms. Race refers to one's physical traits like skin color or facial features or hair. Ethnicity refers to one's inherited way of life, things like language and values and cuisine. The word culture can mean a lot of different things, but here I'm using it to refer to human artistic and intellectual achievements celebrated in things like cities and museums and libraries and concert halls. 
Now, there's a lot of overlap between these three words. For example, an ethnic group typically shares the same race. And for each ethnic group, its cultural features are both shaped by and shaping what that group values. Which is why, for example, Russian literature is very different than Latin American literature. So with those terms defined, let's get back to Lombardi. Let's get back to Genesis and how it teaches us four fundamentals about how to think about race, ethnicity, and culture. And the first truth that Genesis presents us with is this. All races are equal. All races are equal. And Genesis begins with this jarring argument that was as controversial back then as it would be now, and it's this, that all of us share a common ancestry. Every one of us is descended from a literal Adam. Every one of us is descended from a literal Noah. So the 70 different peoples and nations mentioned in Genesis 10... What, what, what did it emphasize to us? They all came from one family. It's like saying, Israel, go out. Go out into Canaan and, and look at the, the Canaanites, the Philistines. Think about the, the Egyptians or the Assyrians. You're all one. At a certain level, you're no different. Look them in the eyes. They are your brothers. See, Genesis, with its elaborate, repeated genealogies, wants our thinking to be clear. We are one family. Not just one family, but also equal before God. So listen to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. See what's being asserted there? Right out of the gate. All humans, all, are created in God's image. And this is again affirmed after the fall in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, when God says it's wrong to kill any human because we are all made in God's image. Every human in this world was created in God's image. Every human being in this world was created with that purpose to reflect God's image so that a white person is no better equipped to do this than a black person. An Asian person is no better equipped to do this than a Middle Eastern person. God puts all this forth plainly and intentionally in the book of Genesis. 
Now, you might wonder why it's important to revisit a topic like this today, because the equality of all races is fairly widely, widely embraced. I think we'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who we know who opposes it. But even though I think it's basic, or even though it is basic, I think it's vital for us today. I want to give three reasons why I think this truth is vital for us today. And the first is that this biblical truth provides a sure foundation for equality. So sure, the wider world today does embrace this idea of the equality of all races. But have you ever thought, on what basis do they do that? I mean, if evolution is true, it depends on the fact that we're not equal. That within a given species, there are inequalities. That there are superior and inferior um, members of that species so that the superior ones can crowd out the inferior ones and, and natural selection can run its course. Think about how that could work. If I am stronger, or my ethnic group is stronger, and then you come up to me and say, uh, yeah, we need equality. You need to treat us equally. I can just, boom, thump you on the head and say, there's your equality out of my way. While the world around us asserts equality, the foundation on which that is built is fairly flimsy. What actually makes us as humans equal? The American Declaration of Independence placed, stated it fairly boldly. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. You got that logic? Unless there is a creator who has endowed us with this equality, there is no true basis for equality. Unless there's a God whose power and law and authority supersedes even that of the oppressors, then we're just left with might makes right. But there is a God who has made us in his image. And therefore, on that foundation, regardless of race, all of us are equally human, equally valuable, equal in dignity and worth. Now, that's just the first reason I think it's important to see from Genesis that all races are equal. But the other two are going to be quicker. The second reason we need to be reminded of this is because sometimes we can wonder if our own racial profile makes us more or, or less valuable to God. And that can be particularly true if we're not part of kind of the racial majority that surrounds us. So I want everyone, but particularly if, if you're struggling with how you look, to listen. Not listen to me, but listen to God. 
how you look is part of how God created this world, part of the beauty of how God created this world. His image bears have different color skin, different shaped noses, different textured hair, different colored eyes. And that's precisely how God designed it. Heaven is going to be populated with people who look differently from one another. And that actually be part of its beauty. So your race is not an obstacle to how God wants to use you. You are not lesser or greater because of your race. I think there's a third reason we need this basic truth. And that's because remnants of racist thinking can still lurk in our flesh even after the basic idea is killed in our mind. When you see that person who drives differently than you, smells differently than you, runs a business differently than you, dresses differently than you. It isn't enough to just understand they're humans. I want you to listen to what God said to Israel in Leviticus 19, verse 34. He said, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. He doesn't just say, understand they're actually human made in my image. The cause to treat them as native, to love them as yourself. And he says, you know what it was like to be in the minority culture. You were that way in Egypt. So it's not enough to pat ourselves on the back because we consider everybody equal. The Bible says that we need to treat those who are different from us as native and to love them as ourselves. Our hearts should go out to them It's hard living, especially if you're part of the minority culture. The majority culture is always sending messages that you don't really belong. When someone from that minority culture interacts with a Christian, they should feel something entirely different. They should feel that they do belong. They should feel like they have a full seat at the table. Because of what the Bible teaches, we should be going out of our way to welcome them in and to affirm their equality. So all of that's under the first foundational truth. All races are equal. The second foundational truth from Genesis is this. Ethnic tension began 
when man rebelled against God. Ethnic tension began when man rebelled against God. Ancient Israel would have known about these kind of ethnic tensions all too well. Remember that they were enslaved in Egypt as a result of ethnic tension. And they're about to enter the land of Canaan where warring tribes were constantly raiding and conquering one another. So for their sake, as well as for ours, Genesis wants them to understand the cause of this tension. And in Genesis chapter 3, we hear about mankind rebelling against God. Adam explicitly and directly disobeys the good God's one command. And one result, one direct result we see of that right out of the gate is tension. Tension between people. Begins on a small scale, a tension between a husband and wife, between male and female. But that tension extends, it expands to brothers. And, and by Genesis 4, you have a society being formed in which Lamech is threatening violence against any who oppose him and his family. So then when you get to Genesis 10 and you hear these different tribes and peoples and nations who we know war with one another, you know what's going on. Saying the flood didn't fix the problem. People are still at odds with one another. So ethnic tension didn't begin when white man invaded indigenous soil. Ethnic tension didn't begin when European slave ships kidnapped Africans and carry them to the Americas. Ethnic tension didn't begin the first time some group held power over some other group. See, ethnic tension is a subset of something bigger. The tension that naturally arises in the human heart and it's a tension that emerged as a result of our rebellion against God. Understand that once we throw off the rule of God, it severs us from our Creator and chaos breaks loose, like when the teacher leaves the classroom. Our sin alienates us from God, and this severed relationship leads to all sorts of other dysfunctional relationships here on earth because we're chasing on earth something that only God can provide. And it makes a mess of things. And Genesis wants to have a right under, uh, it wants, God wants us to have a right understanding of the causes of this estrangement so that we can look to the right place for the cure. Do you remember last week uh, when Utah was preaching, he asked, he gave an illustration for the kids. Maybe kids, you guys remember this. It was the cups, those moving cups was the red ball that they're trying to hide. Yeah, that one. And he was saying, that's kind of how you read Genesis. You're trying to keep your eye on that red ball 
of where is the Savior going to come? It was promised in Genesis 3. Then we see it through the line of Seth. And then we see it through the line of Noah. And then we see it through the line of Shem. And it brings us to Abraham. But watch the red ball, because that, that is how blessing is going to be restored. That's how the serpent's head is going to be crushed. If the true cause of ethnic tension is the sin that has severed us from our God, then what we need in this world is a Savior who can deal with our sin and rebellion and then reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. And when we chase all sorts of other cures for racism and ethnic hatred without dealing with these underlying heart issues, we're running a fool's errand. So the second foundational truth is that ethnic tension began when man rebelled against God. And the second truth is actually very closely related to the third. The third is this. Ethnic tension escalated when man united against God. Ethnic tension escalated when man united against God. Because Genesis doesn't, Genesis doesn't simply trace the cause of ethnic tension to Genesis chapter 3, man's rebellion there, and stop. Because you learn in Genesis 11, as we saw just a couple weeks ago, it also traces it to something that God did in response to mankind's continued rebellion against him. So Genesis 11, you remember, is the Tower of Babel, right? All of humanity is united. They're cooperating, but their union is not under God's rule. They aren't looking to him. Instead, they're self-willed and self-driven. And God knows that when humanity is united like this, unhinged from him, the potential is for great evil. And so he puts a, a regulator on them. He divides their languages for the express purpose of limiting the evil they're capable of. And this is really where the various ethnicities and ultimately races were born. Now, as we saw when we were in Genesis 11, this was only for a time. God's ultimate plan was to then bring all the peoples back together under Jesus. But under Jesus is the key because when we're united in serving God, well, that is a beautiful and healthy unity. But when we're united in rebelling against God, it's a fearful and dangerous unity, no matter what noble-looking veil it might wear. Now, I said the second and third points are very closely related. I actually, at one point in my sermon prep, had them as the same point. But here's how it works. The reason that when God divides their tongues, it just divides them all is because of the underlying issues of the human heart that were already there. 
may, maybe you've had a family function like this, or maybe you can just imagine it, where, where there is some big issue where there are tensions that are, are rife. But you get together and you're all kind of trying to act like it's not there. Everyone's walking on eggshells, being a little artificial. And then somebody brings it up. And boom, the whole thing explodes. And there's feelings are high, voices are raised. That's a little bit what's going on. You kind of got this fragile unity. And God just divides their languages and boom, everything's fractured. So if God has intentionally divided people who are in rebellion against him, the cure cannot simply be to find a way to bring people back together. If we remain in rebellion against God, unity is not a good thing. The cure will be worse than the disease. So let's follow that red ball, right? past Noah, past Abraham, past Judah and David, all the way to Jesus. Did you notice how the New Testament talks about Jesus in that passage I read at the outset? For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who's made us both one and is broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Isn't that glorious? He dealt with the sin on the cross. And in doing that, he took away the very cause of what divided us. We were again restored to our creator. The teacher was back in the classroom. Order was again there. Health was again there. And now we can exist. It talks about as, as one, as fellow citizens, as members of the same household. You see what Jesus is doing? Do you see what God is doing through his anointed king? Ephesians 2 is telling us he's making us into a new humanity, united in Christ. The church is this little deposit of heaven. We're called to be a people who are united under Christ, made new, restored through Christ to our Heavenly Father, and then restored as a result to one another. It is not trite or simplistic to say Jesus is the cure. John Piper, when he was speaking about or writing about these things, said that Jesus is the cure because, in part, his gospel is the cure for everything that enables racism. It's the cure for pride or for hopelessness or for inferiority and self-doubt, or for greed, or for hate, or for fear, or for apathy. 
Imagine a world free from those vices. There wouldn't be any space left for ethnic division and racism. That's exactly what Jesus does. His gospel makes us whole. It renews us. It restores us to our Father. Brothers and sisters, what a task we have been given. What a vision and purpose he's given us. The new humanity in Christ. We're, we, we are his new people. We are that little sneak peek of heaven for the world to see. So let's be such a people. I wish we could all be in this room right now and we could look around. If we could, we'd see people from China and Nigeria and Singapore and Germany and the Netherlands and Jamaica and Portugal. All praising God as one family. And you'd hear people who grew up speaking French or speaking Spanish or Mandarin or German or Hindi or the Queen's English or American English. All praising God as one family. It's beautiful. This is us. That's what God intended. So let's keep pursuing this beauty. I do want to make one other comment on this. I want to tell you that it is actually possible that good Christians might disagree on how exactly to navigate the current racial climate for a host of reasons, some of them cultural and temperamental. We who might affirm, who, we who affirm the same biblical principles might disagree on how we flesh them out. I, I know that's mind-blowing that we might not agree on every single point as Christians. And here's the point. How sad it would be if these differences caused us to fracture and divide, to begin to cast shade or dispersion on fellow believers. If the unity won by Christ's blood is cast off so that we can each pursue our own pet vision of how racial harmony should work, Something is deeply off. That's all I'll say on that. So the Bible's clear on both the causes and cures for ethnic and racial tensions. So we want to be clear in our, think, in our own thinking on these matters too. Ethnic tension began when man rebelled against God. Ethnic tension escalated when man united against God and the only cure is King Jesus.
But I said there are four key truths that we need to capture. So the fourth one's the final one. It's this. The culture we're naturally drawn to has immoral roots. The culture we're naturally drawn to has immoral roots. So Israel had come out of a land, think about it, a land that was profoundly rich with a powerful culture, a culture that's still celebrated today. They'd come out of Egypt with its advanced embalming techniques, with its wonder of the world construction projects, and it certainly would have wowed poor, wandering, buildingless Israel. And they're about to enter a land with these massive cities and all the luxuries those cities afforded. Perhaps fine wine, comfortable living, better food, beautiful gardens. And it would have been easy for them to look at that and to fall in love with those cities like Lot's wife had fallen in love with hers. And so one of the things Genesis repeatedly does is it warns us, don't be enticed. It may be the, the vision is of, of those cities, the, the, those cultures, like as a, this powerful magnet, and, and we're, we're like metal that's drawn to that. And, and Genesis trying to break that pole. So when Genesis 4 tells us where cities and agriculture and technology and the arts came from, it traces them to murdering rebellious Cain at the outset and ends with Lamech who is sexually immoral and grotesquely violent. This culture that seems so appealing is actually birthed from foul people who defy God. That theme is again reiterated reiterated in Genesis 10, when most of the grand and, and noble civilizations, or not noble, impressive civilizations of that day we learn we're descended from Ham, the one who mocked his father Noah's nakedness. And then we see it again in Genesis chapter 11, when mankind's desire to build this greatest tower ever was explicitly done in rebellion against God. So knowing the kind of pull these lusher elements of culture can have upon the human heart Genesis is pulling back the curtain on them, saying the roots are wicked and immoral. Now that's not to say that technology or art or intellectual achievement is inherently evil, because when culture is pursued to show God's beauty and bring glory to him, it's very much in keeping with our task as image bearers. So it's okay to go to the library or enjoy the opera. But we need to beware of these cultural magnets drawing us into the godless city with its godless values because this this connects with everything we're talking about. These various ethnicities as they were formed were actually a part of God. God's judgment on us uniting against him. 
the tensions that are already in our heart that divide us. And, and when man chases something that only God can actually provide in building these great cultures, and, and we get drawn into that, we start to share the values of that culture. And as we do, we will never be able to replicate in his kingdom the kind of unity he, afford, he wants for us. There's a certain rightness in, in glorying in other ethnicities to, to eat the food of other cultures and to, to celebrate the beauty that that culture has, has discovered. But we need to be careful, whether it's our own culture or others, of, 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 of finding that to be our idol or making that our idol. When we're drawn in and our hearts get captured by that, it is poison to unity. Kevin DeYoung recently stated, just like Lot's wife, we will experience the fate of the city that we identify with. If Israel had walked into the land and seen those, ki those, those kingdoms or those city-states, or whatever the right term is, and had their hearts drawn in, they would have never been able to be that city on a hill that Leviticus 19 pictured where the sojourners welcomed in. And you see that play out as the story of the Bible unfolds. So the question is, what city holds our hearts? The man-made cities with all its culture and allures. Or is it the new Jerusalem, the city yet to come, the city that was founded by Christ, of which we are citizens? Insofar as it's the latter, then we are able to form a new nation, a new culture, a culture that Jesus highlighted in his Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. A culture of love and self-sacrifice. A culture where we put others' needs ahead of our own. And this new culture we learn, whether it's in Ephesians 2 or Revelation 5 or 7, is made up of people from every, every race, every tribe. This is the only way forward for our world. It's our only hope. And it's a great hope. So all who are hearing this message this morning, you are invited to join in in this great cause. Let Christ be the one who tears down the dividing wall of his hostility. Turn to him and let his value shape your heart. Let him deal with your sin and restore to your father so that we can again be doing what God has created us to do. Now as I come to the end of the sermon, I know I haven't answered all the pressing questions that the world out there is telling us we must answer. On these issues, are we to side with John MacArthur or Tim Keller? Are we to side with Mark Dever or Al Mohler? Should we, should we be reading Vody Bauckham's Fault Lines or Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise? Should Christians be supporting the Black Lives Movement 
the Black Lives Matters organization or not. So I'll just make it quick. The latter, the former, the latter, and no. No, I'm just kidding. Seriously, don't read anything to that. No. This sermon is about something different. It's a this is the football sermon. But in, in giving that kind of sermon, I actually think it's way more helpful than just telling you how to navigate these complex questions that are forced upon us by social media. Because what Genesis does is it shows us that we need to train our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on him. And also because it calls us to begin here with our diversity of brothers and sisters and to learn in this microcosm of God's eternal kingdom to learn from one another and to learn how to love one another even though we're different as we together seek to live out the new humanity in Christ with real flesh and blood people. I think if we can do those things well, those other questions will take care of themselves. Would you join me in prayer? Father, Thank you for a book like Genesis that answers questions that are still pressing today. May we allow these clear truths from your word to shape us in every way. And may this church be a place, it's a city on a hill, a vision of the future kingdom for all to see to the glory of your name. Amen.